Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 through 13. Hear now the word of the Lord. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia writes, The words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you've kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you've kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I'm coming soon. Hold fast what you have, so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, You may be seated. Before we jump into that text, let's pray and ask for God's God's help. Uh, Father, we believe that you, you speak to us. And there's a number of ways you do that, but primarily you've done that through, through the written revelation of how you've revealed yourself to Israel and through Jesus Christ. And so we, we open up your word to hear you speak and reveal yourself to us wherever we are. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in the mid-1930s, as, as Hitler was taking power in Germany, the Christians who lived there had, had basically two choices. Either fight Hitler or join him. And hindsight is 2020, obviously, but uh, the vast majority of Christians in that day joined with Hitler. The German Lutheran Church endorsed Hitler and became uh, an aid to his coming to power and taking force in, the ger- in, in German culture. But one man didn't join Hitler, and his name was Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer fought Hitler until his death, but Bonhoeffer's method of fighting Hitler was very strange. His fight, his answer to the rise of Hitler's power was to create a secret seminary. It was called Finkenwald. Now, someone who has been to seminary, myself, that seems like a strange answer to a Nazi political power, to create a seminary where people would study the Bible and be raised up to go and serve into pastoral ministry. I want you to think about that for a minute. A seminary is the answer to the world's greatest threat and power of the day. Figenwald was, it was secret, it was illegal to join, and the requirements to be a part of it were, were pretty intense. And Bonhoeffer writes a little bit about how he thought about Christian community and how it resists evil, in his book, Life Together. But in the midst of of creating this secret seminary, this place, a friend wrote to Bonhoeffer, because he was concerned Bonhoeffer was being a little too intense with his requirements. A little, he had far too high of expectations for those who were going to join this community. And so Bonhoeffer invites this friend to come to Finkenwald to to, to see what he's doing at the seminary. And the friend comes and visits him. And in the course of the, of the, the midst of this visit, as as this friend is, is telling Bonhoeffer, you're taking this too far, right? This is too serious. This, the requirements are too high. As they're having this conversation, this visit, Bonhoeffer takes his friend 
um, off to, uh, to, on a journey, and they, they go and they travel, and, and they end up overlooking this hill where, where Hitler's armies are training and doing battle and getting ready for the, the coming attacks they will carry out. And Bonhoeffer says to his friend, this, the seminary I'm creating, this must be stronger than that. And he goes back and takes his friend back to the seminary. And as I think about that moment, I, I wonder, like, the same thing about, about us. Like, how, how is a seminary stronger than, than the rise of the Nazi power, right? How, that makes no sense. And I think about, like, what we do here, right? We sing some songs, we pray some prayers, we, we open up the Bible. And I think about, like, the world in which we live, the the incredible injustice that exists in our world, the incredible evil, a world that seems broken and hell-bent, opposing the ways of God, incredible suffering. I look at like the reality of this world, and then I look at what we are as a church, and I'm like, how is this stronger than that? And yet Bonhoeffer understood something, and ultimately I would say history has vindicated him far more than the Nazis. What Bonhoeffer had in that seminary has proven much stronger than what the Nazis had. And ultimately, that seminary did overcome this Nazi power. And Bonhoeffer, I think, understood something at the heart of Revelation, something I want to think about this, this morning, that as we think about our own church existence and wanting to, wanting to announce the good news of the kingdom of God in a world that, that doesn't have a lot of good news in it, the question for us is, how is this stronger than that? How do we overcome as a church, the reality of this world in which, in which we live. And what I want to, I want to answer that, that question in three ways this morning. How do we overcome as a church? Through weakness, through witness, and through worship. So we got three W's. The sermon's rolling already. Here we go, right? Weakness, witness, and, and worship. So first, how, do we, how is this stronger than that? How do we overcome? It's weakness. And so we're entering, uh, we're ending the are getting to the near of the end of the series on the first three chapters of Revelation where we, we've been looking at Jesus having written seven letters to the church, uh, sort of at this moment between the, like the first generation of Christians uh, who knew Jesus personally, who had, who had seen his ministry on earth, they had died away, and now a, a second generation is, is leading the church. And so Jesus kind of, he, he comes, he writes seven letters to seven churches in real cities, real places, to tell them how to live between his first coming and his, his second coming. And now we come today to a church that was written uh, to a city called Philadelphia. And I remember uh, being like a really young kid reading through these and, and thinking like, hey, finally, like a letter that was written to a church in the U.S. Like, this is great. Uh, this is not the same Philadelphia, it turns out. Um, but one of the things that, that, that jumped out at me um, in this letter and when you take all seven letters in context is that Jesus says of this church, he says, I've set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. And then he says, he says I know that you have but little power. Yet you've kept my word and not denied my name. But this church is a church of, of little power. And there's an irony here in this letter to Philadelphia that's, that exists in, when you pull back and look at all seven letters to the church, and then when you pull back and you look at all the scriptures, is an irony that runs through the, the storyline of the entire Bible, which is this irony between weakness and strength. And in Revelation 1 through 3, it's the churches that have the outward strength, that look the most impressive, which actually we're going to look at the next two weeks. Next week we'll look at Sardis. The week after we'll look at Laodicea. We'll sort of ending in that place. The churches that look the strongest get the strongest rebuke from Jesus. 
The churches that have the greatest outward appearance, that look like they, just, they, were the, they were the thing, those churches were the churches Jesus basically said, you are borderline about to, to fall away. And yet outwardly they looked apart. And, and on the reverse, the, the churches that are described as being very poor, that was Smyrna, we looked at that a couple weeks ago, and here in Philadelphia, the church with little power, the church that if, if you just drove by, looked like, man, there's nothing there. Right? Finkenwald Seminary, there's a few people out in, you know, hiding from the German Nazis, not impressive. It's these churches that get no rebuke from Jesus. He has nothing to say to the poor and to the weak church of little power. It's the, the churches that appear strong that actually are weak, and it's the churches that appear weak but actually are strong. What is that? And that, as I said, like that's a, a storyline actually that runs through the entire um, storyline of the Bible. The Bible actually affirms weakness. And we, and we need to be careful about that because it's, it doesn't mean that like weakness is actually a desirable trait we should all attain to and strength is bad, right? It's not, that's not what the Bible is saying because strength is a good thing, right? And that's why CrossFit has become this like almost kind of this like another religion that's a part of our culture now, right? CrossFit's about overcoming your limitations, getting stronger, becoming, you know, getting in really good shape. Or if CrossFit was just a bunch of people who like got together to eat Twinkies together, like that wouldn't be, like no one would go, right? Or maybe they would, I don't know. Um, but we all, we all want to be stronger. We all, like there's something like empowering about that or uh, beautiful about a human being, like overcoming their physical limitations, getting stronger. And in some sense, like we all, we all want to be stronger. We want to We want to be a little bit stronger physically. We want to be in better shape. We want to have a little bit better of a job. We want to have more influence. We want to make a little bit more money. We want to see our kids become strong and full. So strength is not bad, but 2 Corinthians, as Paul was reflecting on his own ministry in life, 2 Corinthians, Paul says that Jesus said this to him. Again, this is Paul quoting Jesus to us. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. This is not a command like forbidding CrossFit, although some of us is like, there's other, there's other parts of the Bible that probably forbid that. Um, but what, what does it mean that weakness is good and that, that the, the power of God is present in weakness? Let's keep thinking this out. Um, so the, the beginning of each letter to, to each of these churches in Revelation, it always starts with an image of Jesus, a vision of Jesus. And here's what the vision of Jesus for this church in Philadelphia it says, the words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. Right, what's that about? There's a door. There's a, Jesus has a key, and it's David's key. What does that mean? Well, this is a, it's a quotation from Isaiah chapter 22. In Isaiah 22, what's happening there is the king of Israel, uh, his name is Hezekiah, king of Judah, Hezekiah, he... He's changing his secretary of state. He's making a change. And he's going to move from this guy named Shebna to this guy named Eliakim. And I know you're all riveted, right? Like, tell me more about this. No. What, what's important is that when he makes the shift, and Eliakim now is the secretary, he's the most important person in the kingdom next to Hezekiah, what he's told us, he now has the key of David. He gets, he gets the key to the palace door. He gets to open it to whoever he wants to open it, and he gets to shut it to whoever he wants to shut it to. And we need to be careful here because when we think of keys, we think of like the little, you know, pathetic things that we can take to Walmart and they make copies and that's what a key is. That's not what keys were in that day. A key in that day, so the palace door to to Hezekiah, it would have been this like just huge metal bar, right? Because it had to be incredibly weighty so that 
coming, uh, you know, incoming enemies, couldn't attack, couldn't, no one could break in, right? And they didn't have locks like we have today. So a key, well, it had to move this giant, thick, heavy metal bar. And so this key would have been this like pretty complex, impressive contraption that you would put to the bar and then you would turn it and it would open the bar, it would open the palace doors to whoever, the Secretary of State, um, this guy named Eliakim, whoever he wanted to open the doors to the palace, he could open that. He had the key now. And so Jesus is saying to this like little church that has little power that the rest of the world does not find impressive, he says, I have the keys to the palace of God and I'm opening the door to you and no one can shut it. You, the king of the universe and his kingdom and his salvation, the door is wide open to you as a church. That's, what, that's what's being said here. You whom the world is, is persecuting and thinks is pathetic and you have little power, you actually, the, the palace doors to the kingdom of God and God himself are open and you can come in whenever you want. So I want to think this out in two ways for us as a church. First, individually, is his grace sufficient for you? The weakness is embraced in the Bible not because strength is necessarily bad or cursed, it's because it's because weakness is recognizing that I have his grace and I don't need anything else. And typically when I start getting some other things in life, whether it's a little bit more money, a little bit more influence, a little bit more of a position, people think I'm when I, Whenever I start accumulating things that, that make me strong, I, I begin to forget the beauty and power of his grace, right? I see the open door to the palace and it's like, that doesn't, that doesn't move me, right? I have these things over here. I don't need that. I've, I've, got, I've got plenty of money. I can do whatever I want. I have, the, I have strength, right? I don't need to enter into the palace. But do you believe that in Jesus Christ, the doors of salvation are wide open to you and you don't need anything else? The closest thing that I've ever gotten to to the doors of a palace was uh, my sister uh, lived in New York City for a number of years. And in her first apartment, she was neighbors with Carson Daly. At that time, I think TRL was still on. Those of you who grew up, you know, middle school in the 90s and early 2000s, like that, that was our thing, right? TRL, Total Request Live. Now he's the host of The Voice, for those of you who, you know, watch that show. But he was, you know, mild celebrity. They're living next to my, my sister. And I was so tempted, like, just at some point, just to knock on his door, see if he was there, see if he would open the door to me. And if he did, it's like I got a built-in excuse, like, oh, I thought this is my sister's apartment. My bad. It's like, is that you, Carson Daly, right? It's, I could have done that. I never did. Um, I really wanted to. Um, but there was something about, like, this door to this celebrity, somewhat mildly famous, mildly famous person's house being, like, right there next to my sister's uh, apartment. And just there was something about that for, like, Carson Daly, someone who honestly, like, I'm not, I don't even like him. Like, he's not even that great of a celebrity to me. But it's like, he's powerful, right? He's important. That meant something. And, and what the gospel ultimately is, what's being said to this little church here is that, you know, you don't get, with Jesus, you don't get into Carson Daly's apartment. That sounds weird. Right? That's not the promise. The promise is the palace of God itself. And how many of us, because we're filled with so many other things in life, money, you know, whatever it is, like that, that invitation doesn't even resonate with us. And yet this church of little power, Jesus is like, you don't need anything. You don't have, you don't have any power. It's okay. I have opened the doors to you, and no one can shut them. I'm the one who, no one else can open them but me, and no one else can shut them but me, and I, they are wide open to you. Is that enough for you? Do you have all that you need in, in the salvation of Jesus and him opening life to the kingdom? Is that all you need? Could you, could you lose everything tomorrow and have lost nothing? Is his grace sufficient for you first? But secondly, as a church, is his grace sufficient for us? 
And ultimately, like, this little church doesn't need the world's approval or applause. It's weak. It has little power. What's, what's going on here, and I'll talk more about this in a second, most likely, is that the Jewish people had a, a very significant presence in the city, and they've decided now to use that significant presence to, to target and persecute Christians in particular and, and, and potentially lead them to be arrested, be killed, all of those, those things. It has, the, the world hates this little church. And yet they, uh, they have access to the palace of God. For that community, that should be enough. And I, what I wonder today is in our church community, is that enough that we have whatever the world looks at towards us is irrelevant because we have an open access to the palace of God. And here's what I mean by that. And today, when I, when I log into Twitter, when I turn on my TV, I see a lot of Christians who are, who are speaking as if they're afraid as if they're scared, they're yelling, they're angry, because we are, we are losing, like, cultural influence. I'll talk more about that in a second. Orthodox Christianity today is losing its power, and there are some Christians who are freaking out. And I'm just like, have you read the Bible? Like, the end is pretty good. Let's not forget that. And to illustrate this, the, a man named Douglas Hyde, who he was an author, a journalist, he was a communist, and he converted to Christianity in the late 1940s. He, was, he became a Catholic. And when he made that change, he, like, he was just so stunned by the difference of like, the hopefulness of the communist communities he was a part of who were like, convinced, we're going to take over the world, it's going to work. And he's like, I became a Christian, and there was this defeatist, pessimistic attitude. He's like, I did not understand. And so he writes this in one of his memoirs. He says this. So again, Douglas Hyde, he was a communist, becomes a Christian. He writes this. Coming straight, as it were, from one world to another, it astounded me that there should be people with such numbers at their disposal, with the truth on their side, going around weighed down by the thought that they were a small, beleaguered minority, carrying on some sort of impossible fight against a big majority. The concept was wrong. Psychologically, it was calamitous. I think that's still true today. Hyde becomes a Christian. He leaves this, he leaves this communist community. He's like, you guys are depressing. <laughs> like, this is sad. Like, like you have the, like, Jesus is king. He went, like, he is good. And, like, look at the church throughout history, the, the change it's affected. Like, we should be the most hopeful, like, encouraged, like, positive-shaped people in the world. And I, I'm not seeing it right now. Church, we overcome, but we don't overcome through power. I think that's, I think that's what we're wrestling through, right, as an American church now, is, is we want to overcome through power. We want to be applauded. We want to be, you know, we want to look great and... And that's changing. And here's the thing. We are, our, our ultimate symbol of salvation and victory and overcoming as a church is a cross. We are not defeatists. We are not pessimists. His grace is, is sufficient for us. His palace doors are wide open to us. And it's from the place of weakness we overcome. So that's first. We overcome through weakness. Second, how do we overcome? It's through witness. And so the second uh, verse in this letter that really grabbed me was, it was verse 9. Um, where Jesus says to the church, Behold, I will make those a, uh, of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews but are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. I mentioned this a second ago. What's happening here probably is that the Jewish population in, in Philadelphia was very, <clears throat> excuse me, was very influential. And they've decided to target the church now in particular. And, and that's important because, um, unfortunately, like these some of these words were even used by Hitler himself to, to encourage persecution against Jewish people. Um, and the church have used these verses, the synagogue of Satan, to persecute Jewish people, which is, is wrong. The reason why that phrase is there is because, um, because in this moment, Jewish people are trying to, uh, trying to persecute 
Christians, and, and so that was wrong, and that's why this phrase is there. And so it, later in history, when the church was the one persecuting Jewish people, no doubt had Jesus written a, a letter to that church, he would have called that church the Church of Satan, right? Church, religious groups that tried to harm and persecute and hurt other people, um, especially physically through violence, that, that is the work of Satan himself. So that's what's going on here. It's not an anti-Semitic statement. Jesus himself was Jewish. John, who wrote this revelation, this book of Revelation, was, was Jewish. And it's also important um, just to understand what's even going on here, which is that this is a quote, uh, not the synagogue of Satan part, the, lo- the, the, the second half of that verse. It's a quote from Isaiah 45, um, which in that, in that context, what's happening is God is saying to Israel, his chosen people, that even though there are all these nations around them that hate them and want to destroy them and want to see them come to an end, all of these Gentile nations who despise Israel and do not want to see Israel thrive, God is going to save them, and they're going to come at the feet of the people of Israel and worship God alongside next, them, next to them. And there's two things happening in there. One is it's vindication, right? It's, it's, they may be your persecutors now, but they're wrong, right? In the end, you'll be vindicated. They're, they're going to see that I've loved you, right? You're not cursed. I love you. But secondly is this idea that the enemies of God get converted and become his people, and that, like, my guess is most of us in this room are, are Gentiles. You're, maybe you have a little bit, maybe you've done 23 and me, you know, there's like, I'm like one, one thousandth Jewish, right? Maybe that's you. But the point, like, most of us are Gentiles, which means, you read Isaiah 45, we are the enemies of God, who are outside of the promises of God, whom God is speaking of and saying, I'm going to bring them in. You're gonna be, they're going to be a part of my salvation. I'm going to save them through my, my work. And so it's this outlandish promise of God converting his enemies to himself. And you and I are a part of that. If you are, if you are not Jewish, <laughs> you are a part of that promise that happened. Which means, I want to think this out in a couple ways as a church. The first, that the church has enemies. I'm reading a, a book on Advent right now uh, by um, a, a woman named Fleming Rutledge. And, and in one of her, uh, one of, one of her chapters, she quotes from the 1928 Anglican Book of Prayer, their baptism service for, for infants. And I love it. It's great. But it's probably, it probably wouldn't work today. Um, but here's what it is. Just to be clear, it's, uh, it's, you know, in that day, they just used uh, male-only pronouns. I'm going to lean into that. So I want you to hear what was spoken over a child as they were baptized. So it's an infant. It's a little baby. Right? We did child dedication a couple weeks ago. Cute little babies. Um, holding up here. So when they had their cute little babies, this is what they said. Listen to this. We receive into the congregation of Christ's flock... This little baby, so that they, they should manfully fight under his banner against sin, the world, and the devil. And to continue, Christ's faithful soldier and servant until life's end. Amen. Right, we hear that's a little troubling, right? So they're going to battle, they're going to fight, they're, they're a soldier. And yet that's exact, uh, sort of the exact revelation language that's used, that there's a cosmic battle happening. And if you're in the way of Jesus, you are, you may want to ignore that or, or step away from that, but there is a cosmic war that's present. And so in, in, it used to be when we, when we brought our babies before the congregation, they were like, this, there's a battle, and this baby is going to join that and, and grow up and become a strong witness to the way of Jesus. So this is the language of, of Revelation. And we talked about this, but I want to bring this back in because this is important. A theologian, Richard Bauckham, would say that if you want to understand the deeply complex book of Revelation, the key is to understand what this word conquer or overcome 
means. And so I mentioned this a couple weeks ago. It's, it's a common word all through Revelation and through all of the Apostle John's writings. But it's present in every one of the, the letters to the seven churches. When you get to the end of the seven, end of, the, of each letter, you hear this phrase, to the one who conquers. I, I a little bit prefer the language overcomes because it's not just... You know, we hear conquer, I think we start thinking a little bit um, in, in the wrong direction. But it is a word that refers to victory and to strength and to power and to conquering. It's used to people who were in, con- you know, the, the games and they won and they got a crown or a wreath. They're victorious. Right? And we use it, we talked about this word a couple weeks ago. It's the Greek word nikon, nikao. Right? And we, I had you say it. Um, and it, it's such a symbol of strength, victory, power that I mentioned an American company decided to make nikao the name of their company. It's Nike. Just do it, right? A symbol of athletic feet and strength and overcoming. Probably people at CrossFit wear it, right? This is a symbol of strength and power. And this word appears to every single letter of the seven churches, to the one who conquers, to the one who overcomes. There's this assumption that there are enemies and that the people of God are in this battle. And in the end, every force of evil and injustice and sin And ultimately, the world, the flesh, and the devil will be defeated by the witness of the church. And the the way we do that, Revelation 12 says, the way we do that is this. The victorious church is described like this in Revelation 12. They, the church, they have conquered, overcome, they've Nike'd Satan, the devil, by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love their lives, they love not their lives, even unto death. And so this word for us, overcoming, conquering, it means a willingness to bear witness to Jesus, whatever the cost, including our own lives. And so I mentioned this, Bauckham, you know, who's sort of this stuffy New Testament theologian, he, said, he, sort of, he says this, if you want to understand what overcoming means, what conquering means to the church, it means this. If we must translate the call to conquer into literal terms, we could say it requires every Christian already to accept the martyrdom that faithful witness may incur. Throughout the history, the church has, has tried to conquer and overcome in a number of ways, many of them harmful and outside the way of Jesus. The way of Jesus, the way of conquering through Revelation, is to bear witness about Jesus to our enemies and pay whatever, it co- whatever cost it takes. Through weakness and through witness, we bear witness to the name of Jesus, expecting there will be a cost. And it may be our life. And so how do we overcome? Well, first, we, like, we just need to be realistic about that. Right? You can't, like, there are enemies to the church first. But then secondly, and I've already started to hint in this direction. And secondly, the church should expect enemies to become our brothers and sisters. I heard a Christian uh, I really respect, a theologian who, who was uh, at the seminary I went to. He recently said, um, you know, 30 years ago, the apologetic challenge to the church was, is Christianity true? Right? Can we prove that Christianity is, is ultimately true compared to the, the, West, the rest of the way of seeing the world? And that, that, important is still really, that question is still very important. And, and yet we have another question that's probably more important now, which is not, is Christianity true? Um, but is Christianity good? Is Christianity a good thing? And now at, 30, I mean, at 36 years old, I've seen a number of my friends walk away from Jesus. And, and 
and 20 years ago, when people would leave Christianity, it was more like embrace and the moral lifestyle, right? It was, I don't want to follow, these are good teachings, I don't want to follow them, I want to do what I want. Today, the reverse language is used of leaving Christianity. It's, I'm leaving my bigoted past. I'm leaving some tr- really troubling, harmful, terrible things, and I'm embracing something better and, and morally superior to the Christian upbringing I grew up in. And so now the apologetic challenge for us as a church isn't, hey, is Christianity true? Is Jesus God? It's, it's like, is the Bible a book we should even read because of some things that are, are in there? And one, one problem the church has made is we've, we've sort of stuffed away those, those questions. Now they, they've come up and we have to deal with them. And, and yet, I think the reality for many of us is that we feel that culture shifting underneath our feet. Is that I, how do I even like, convince someone Christianity is a good thing? And so we're, we're speaking with people who see a, a very different world than we, we see it. And we feel those pressures. And ultimately, here is my fear is that I see a lot of Christians in response to that, that cultural pressure and reality adopting a scorched earth, earth philosophy, which is we're going to fight back through every means necessary, and we're going to speak with people with whom we disagree, politically, theologically, that makes reconciliation or the idea we would worship together one day almost impossible. The Christians, and I, I hit this in point one, I'm going to hit it again, I'm just going to, I'm going to give it away, I'm going to hit it in point three as well. Um, Christians should live as the most hopeful, expectant people in the universe. Enemies become God's worshipers. That is your, if you are a Christian, that is your story. That's my story. I was a Gentile. I was one of the ones when Isaiah 45 said, don't worry, those really wicked, evil people, someday they're going to come in and worship at the temple. That's me. That's my story. And so how dare any of us look at anyone outside the kingdom of God and see them not as a potential brother or sister. And again, couple that with point one. We have real enemies, right? I'm not naive. And yet we approach ministry, mission, witness as the most hopeful, expectant people. Because look at our, we're Isaiah 45. Right? Like we were enemies. We're now worshipers. And every person, I mean, you think of your, your enemies, the people who, who see the world differently. The people who have looked at Christianity and said things about the church. That this is a morally bad place. Right? This is a morally bad thing. Let's, let's get this witness out of our, our culture. Like those people exist and it's real. And yet, and yet, if I could become a worshiper, who can't? If you could be, like, who can't? We're not burning this place down. We are bearing witness to the kingdom of God. The palace doors are wide open, and anyone can come in. Should be the most hopeful, expectant people on earth. So the way we overcome, it's through worship, it's through, or it's through witness, it's through weakness, and finally, it's through, through worship. And what I mean by worship, there's lots of ways to define that, but when I think of worship, what I ultimately think of is having my imagination full of the truth and promises of God. And when I think about the life and, and the day I'm entering into, I'm not entering into them, what I, what, I, what I see in front of me, what I'm entering into is the story of the kingdom of God through the Hebrew Bible, through the New Testament, the, the reality of promises of God made bare to me. And, and that's where this letter ends. God just, he just loads promises onto this little powerless church in Philadelphia. And so he says this, all right, so to the one who conquers, right, so to the one who, who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from uh, my God out of heaven, and my own new name. Now, there's tons of promises in there. I'm only going to focus on, on two. And the first one is that Philadelphia, it was a city that was known for earthquakes. Their earthquakes were pretty common there, so you, you'd build something, earthquake would come and fall down, right? That was sort of the rhythm of the city. But here, Jesus says, if you, if, if, you are, if you are with me, if you conquer and overcome with me, you will be a pillar in the temple 
of my God, right? And a pillar being really important in a city with earthquakes, right? Having a structural foundation that would mean when the earthquake comes, your building wouldn't, wouldn't fall down. And so what Jesus is saying is this little church, very little power, like you're gonna, you are going to be, you are not what people think you are. You are actually a pillar in the temple of my new God. When an earthquake comes, you are going to be the strength and the power that means this foundation is not strength, is not, is not torn to the ground, it's not fall to the ground. You are a symbol of the enduring, powerful presence of God, right? It's a pillar in the temple. It's the first promise. The second is that Jesus promises to give his church his own new name, his own name, which is a promise not just of like of power, but of affection and concern and love and commitment of attachment. And the primary way we see the symbol worked out in our own culture is, is through a wedding ceremony where in many traditions, someone, this was true for my own marriage, my wife took my name, right? She's Misty Spamberg now, right? And that's a sign of, of affection, of attachment, of commitment. And that's when Jesus says, the new heavens, new earth, I'm going to give you my name. It's, it's him. It's a marriage proposal, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's come be my bride, which is how the Bible ends, Jesus welcoming us as his bride. And so... Our imaginations need to be full of those promises. If we're going to go out and, and, and give a hopeful, expectant witness to, to our world. And that's our story, right? Is we were the enemies of God. The palace doors got opened to us. And not just open so we could like, hang out in the courtyard, but so that we could go in and marry the king. And Jesus, that is our story. And, and I want to leave you with two Two attributes that should be true as we leave this place. And they're not new. I've talked about them all morning. But first, the church should be a, a people of, of courage. By every worldly measure, Bonhoeffer's seminary in Finkenwald failed. It lasted less than two years. Most of the students there never made it to pastoral ministry. 27 of them were arrested. Bonhoeffer himself ended up arrested and was sent to, to Flossenburg concentration camp. And to add insult to injury... Two weeks before the U.S. liberated Flossenburg, Bonhoeffer was, was uh, committed to execution and was killed two weeks before his freedom. And so in the definition of the world, Bonhoeffer was conquered and overcome. He failed. And, and that's why I think when, you, when I start with, like, is this stronger than that? It's like it looks so often like it's not. The church, the witness of the church, the power of God often seems to be conquered by this world. And yet, listen to how Bonhoeffer speak about how un he understood what he was doing in the seminary community in Finkenwald from his book, Life Together. Bonhoeffer writes, Jesus Christ lived in the midst of his enemies. At the end, all his disciples deserted him. On the cross, he was utterly alone, surrounded by evildoers and mockers. For this cause, he had come to bring peace to the enemies of God. So the Christian, too, belongs not in the seclusion of a cloistered life, but in the thick of foes. There is his commission, his work. The kingdom is to be in the midst of your enemies, and he who will not suffer this does not want to be of the kingdom of Christ. He wants to be among friends, to sit among roses and lilies, not with the bad people, but the devout people. And here's where he leans in. Are you blasphemers and betrayers of Christ? If Christ had done what you are doing, who would ever have been spared? The Bonhoeffer understood the gospel is that Jesus died in the midst of his enemies, surrounded by his enemies, mocked by his enemies, utterly alone, so that he could save his enemies. And so Bonhoeffer, full of the gospel, died the same death 
his own savior died, surrounded by mockers, executed by the state, powerless. And yet what he says is, this is the whole work of the kingdom of God. And today, listen, we can in worldly terms say, listen, Bonhoeffer won. Life Together is one of the most read books in Christian community. Disciple, Cost of Discipleship is one of the most read. You could, you could use it in worldly terms, but I don't want to do that because what Bonhoeffer, I think, would say is we die through weakness, through suffering, through death, through standing firm in the midst of our enemies and bearing witness to Christ. And you look back at 2,000 years of church history, and that's worked. God has overcome. There's amazing stories attached to that. And ultimately, that's what our gospel story is, is that the, the gospel, the more I live it out, the more I become a person of sac- self-sacrificial witness to my own enemies, right? Where I see that Jesus died alone, deserted by evildoers and mockers so that he could welcome me in. And so my disposition towards enemies, towards people who see the world differently than me, is, is, is the disposition of Jesus, so for, we, should have, we, should be cur- we should be courageous people. The church should be a, a people of courage. And secondly, and listen, I, I told you, I've said this twice, I'm going to say it a third time because I want to hit this again. Christians should be the most hopeful people on the planet. We should be people of courageous hope. And, and listen, I, I confess, as I get updates from our brothers and sisters in, in China, right, it's the, for my first reaction is how in the world is the church stronger than this world? Because the state is just, just putting its foot on the church in China, and yet one of the updates I got a couple weeks ago was a church that's deeply connected with the China Partnership in a city called Chengdu just had one of their uh, church leaders released from prison. He was in prison for over 200 days, and so this was in their church bulletin a couple weeks ago, writing an update on this brother. He spent nearly seven months in a room without any natural daylight, was never allowed any fresh air, and his biological clock was entirely non-functional. But praise God for caring for and protecting this brother over the past seven months. Even though this brother was held in solitary confinement for a long time, he was not completely alone, for the Lord was with him. Even though he was not given any fresh air and did not see any sunlight for a long time, he did not lose hope, for the Lord was his light. He did not lose hope. And I just want to, like, would people describe us as a community of hope? as Christ's community, as a church of hope. Would people look at the church Christianity today and say, if you want hope, go there? Because we should be, right? I mean, this should be full of hope that Jesus, the Son of God, our enemy, died for us. He opened the palace doors to us. And he promises to give us his own name. And whether you wake up tomorrow in a prison or in a palace, no one can take that from you. That is, there is, Jesus says, I open it and I shut it, no one else can. And he said to those in his way, to those who seek him in faith, it's open. And as Jesus said to his disciples right before the Roman state put its, its foot on his throat and killed him and put him on a cross, one of the last things Jesus said to his disciples, to his church, was in the world, you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have conquered the world. Let's pray. Father, I pray those words from Jesus would be our sending words today. We would go to the communion table to receive the the meal of the palace of the king. We would sing in a a few moments of the salvation that has been, been given to us as people who don't need anything else. And then we walk out of those doors knowing 
while there is, is real tribulation in this world, as Jesus said and promised and warned us about, all of it has been overcome by him through his cross. So fill us with courage and fill us with hope as we worship and sing, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.